Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Governor Malloy says a substantial number of state job cuts are imminent after unions decided or declined to negotiate changes to benefits and pensions. There were split decisions yesterday in Western primaries that kept hope alive for Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz. And cue the Rocky theme in Connecticut's upcoming primary, an underdog gets the top ballot line. Those are a few of the stories we'll tackle in the wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. You can join us as always. 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us, as always, in the wheelhouse is Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hi there, Colin. Mr. Dankosky, what I like about you is you're always repping. But what about our other guests? What percentage of the time are they repping? (laughs) I I would say at at NBC30, Bob Maxson is repping 98, 99% of the time. I would, I would guess so. I'm not sure about Max, though. <laughs> Max Reese is a political reporter for NBC Connecticut. <laughs> How's it going, Max? I'm living the dream uh, out there, John. Yeah. If I'm being honest about it, I, I probably rep about 70 to, 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 to 75% of the <laughs> Which time. Which is not bad. It's, it's <laughs> better than most, I think. Danielle Altamari is constantly repping. She's a state house reporter for the Hartford Current. Hello there, Daniela. Hi. Um, okay, so we're going to start somewhere else, though. We're not going to start on state politics, and we're not going to start on the presidential race. We're going to start yesterday in Brussels, Belgium. It left at least 31 people dead, this terrorist attack, 270 injured. ISIS has claimed these attacks. It's left Western countries shaken again. Chris Murphy, the senator in Connecticut, has serves on the Foreign Relations Committee. He said he will announce some policy recommendations in the aftermath of these attacks. Yesterday, he spoke to WNPR about some of the issues raised. I think there are some very serious questions about the Belgians' ability specifically to monitor these cells. And every weak link in Europe is a weak link that affects the United States because if these terrorists are European citizens, then they can come to the United States with a very light-touch security screen. That's Chris Murphy speaking to WNPR yesterday. Uh, We'll be hearing more from him later on today. Uh, Colin, I'll just turn to you first. Almost every analysis of these attacks that I've read says we're not surprised. The the folks in Belgium aren't surprised. People even at NATO and the EU aren't surprised. This was bound to happen. So should we not be surprised? Was this bound to happen? Well, I mean, first of all, there are different versions of the word surprise, obviously. I mean, in in some kind of generalized sense, yes, there's sort of an understanding that uh, Europe's borders are pretty loose and that we're increasingly a more globally mobile world anyway. People move around a lot. And so you have this kind of um, hybrid thing where you have people coming out of the war theater in Iraq and Syria uh, and and then maybe joining up with uh, more homegrown Brussels-based groups, and it's it's going to be a very hard thing to monitor. I mean, I and I, it's going to be a hard thing to 
to, to stay ahead of. The one thing that I would say about this is that, and I think it's the thing that Americans maybe understand the least right now, is that these attacks are at least partially a response to what's going on in the war theater of the Middle East, which is gigantic. I mean, people, there's something called Operation Inherent Resolve, which nobody ever talks about. But it's, I think, 11,000 bombing strikes in Iraq and Syria now uh, by the U.S. and its coalition partners, which include Belgium. Not that they've really dropped a lot of bombs. But, I mean, think about what 11,000 bombing strikes means. Uh, it costs also about $11 million dollars a day. It's cost $6.5 billion since we started it, uh, started doing it. So obviously a group the size of ISIS is not going to really be able to stand up very well in the teeth of something like that. So they take the battle to other places. And that's part of what you're seeing. And, and that gets to one of the questions that comes up an awful lot on the uh, on the campaign trails is, what is America doing? We're not doing enough to battle ISIS. As, you, as you've said on the program before, 11,000 bombing strikes sounds like an awful lot. Yeah. I mean, think about what one bombing strike would be here in the United States. You know, think about what, what that would feel like. And then think about 100, think about 1,000, think about 11,000. It's a lot. Um, so when people like Ted Cruz talk about bombing it flat or carpet bombing or whatever, it's kind of hard to imagine how that would be different from what we basically do now, unless you abandoned all discrimination whatsoever and decided you didn't care who you killed as long as you killed a lot of people. And, and when you talk about the carpet bombing and the, and the idea of all these airstrikes, in the uh, in the documentary Fog of War about Robert McNamara, the old Secretary of Defense, there's this wonderful graphic that they had at their fingertips, not graphic, but at that time probably spreadsheets that said, all right, every city that we're going to bomb, this is the American equivalent. Okay, this is Detroit. This is Flint. This is, uh, you know, this is Des Moines, Iowa. That's what they're bombing. And the question that we keep seeing on the campaign trail is at what point – does America decide that we need ground troops in there to change the conversation about uh, land advances? What is ISIS doing? Um, and I also found some of the debate interesting yesterday about what was the president doing in Cuba? He's at this baseball game, and you had the Republican presidential candidate saying, this attack just happened. The president needs to be uh, in the Situation Room doing all this. But then Obama responded saying, well, no, 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 they want us to they want us to change our behavior, so I should be I should be here. And that on cable news yesterday, that was a very hot topic, kind of back and forth, left and right on that. You know, one of the things though is the response to this. What should the American response be? What should the American military response be? What does it mean to the presidential race? But Danielle, I mean, I think one of the most important things to think about is just the reaction to this happening once again, and this feeling that now an attack like this seemingly is going to be part of our news if not every day, every other day, every month, we continue to see this. And I guess I just wonder, in, in the world that you cover, how much is changing the way people view our security, the way we need to think about uh, uh, American government, uh, the way we need to think about border security or immigration or anything else, because this has become, at this point, a really sad daily fact of life. Yeah, I mean, you know, we saw it with Paris, and, you know, it's just it's the same thing over and over again, and it's uh, it's very difficult um, emotionally, I think, for everyone, uh, even, you know, folks over here that are uh, a few steps removed. I mean, you have Donald Trump talking about, you know, how he's going to deal with it with the waterboarding and um, attacking the families of terrorists. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know uh, how much um, stake people put in that, but it seems to, you know, there's there's certainly an element that that appeals to, and people are— Responding. Well, Bernie Sanders gave a speech last night in San Diego, and, and he sounded, uh, well, he, he used some language that I guess we're not used to hearing Bernie Sanders uh, say. We will destroy ISIS through a coalition in the Middle East, 
led by the Muslim nations themselves. Uh, later on, he, uh, Colin, he uses the word, we will crush ISIS. I mean, Bernie Sanders uh, using some language that we're more used to hearing uh, on the Republican uh, campaign trail. Yeah, I mean, I think kind of de rigueur, you almost have to say that you're going to crush ISIS. I'm not even really quite sure what that means. Once again, it's a movement of about maybe 36,000 people. That would be sort of the, the the strength of ISIS. It's not a very big group. It, it's not difficult to crush them because there's so many of them or because they're so strong or because we're not hitting them hard enough. It's hard to crush them because they're fundamentally ideological in nature. Their recruitment tool tools are ideological. And I mean, you know, the more that you talk about crushing them, well, I mean, uh, look, crushing them, I mean, that, that ship has sailed. But the more that you talk about things like waterboarding and stuff like that, um, the more that you're providing recruitment mechanisms for them. You want to be careful, not that anybody seems to be careful anymore, but especially Mr. Trump, to, uh, about saying things and doing things that ultimately make their case for them. I would quickly say that Mr. Abdel Salam, the man who was grabbed four days uh, before this uh, in connection with the Paris attacks, appears to have been cooperating straight along here. He has not required waterboarding, at least not so far. <laughs> um, I, I, I just want to turn to Daniela, uh, Daniela quickly and say that uh, we understand that Chris Murphy uh, who you heard earlier is going to be actually talking about them. I mean, what, what do we expect to hear from Chris Murphy, somebody who has tried to be on the front lines of what's happening in Europe? Certainly. Uh, he's, he's very engaged probably more than anybody else in the Senate in European affairs right now and also in the fight against ISIS. What do we expect to hear out of Chris Murphy today? Well, um, you know, I'm not sure what he's going to say or what he's going to come up with some policy prescriptions uh, for, for dealing with this. Um, you know, I'm not really sure sort of what his uh, what the specifics are at this point, but um, you know, he has, as you pointed out, been very um, uh, out front on this issue, um, partly, be, you know, again, because of his position on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Of, of course, uh, yesterday, as these uh, events were unfolding uh, in Brussels, uh, Americans in the western part of the country were going to the polls. Bernie Stan- Sanders uh, had a moderately successful night in the western primaries. He picked up wins in Utah and Idaho, lost the big prize to Hillary Clinton of Arizona. Uh, Hillary Clinton uh, won on the Democratic side, Donald Trump on the Republican side. As you looked at uh, everything that happened yesterday in these western states, Max, what did you take away from it? I mean, last week we were um, asking the question, is Bernie Sanders done? And he actually picked up more delegates than Hillary Clinton did yesterday. There was a good analysis. I want to say it was Washington Post about how Bernie Sanders is getting back to the message candidate he was at the start of the race. He started out as a candidate who wasn't necessarily going to win, but then obviously his poll numbers became what they are, what they were, uh, you know, polling in the mid-40s against Hillary. Um, But now it appears that he's still getting these more wins. What he can do is he can continue that message, the economic equality argument, the uh, taxing the wealthy, the millionaire billionaire, the huge arguments we keep hearing. Those can continue longer. I still think it's a foregone conclusion that Hillary Clinton is the is the Democratic nominee. But on the Republican side, John Kasich was the big loser. Uh, John Kasich walked away with zero delegates. Now he has a Waterloo kind of moment with Wisconsin in about two weeks, I believe. Uh, So I think that Sanders, he's able to stay in the race longer, can probably keep his fundraising going. But then John Kasich, uh, if he doesn't do well in Wisconsin, probably even win Wisconsin, we're going to be down to a two-man race. Um, Interesting, uh, these these states and the way that they broke for these candidates, uh, Utah and Idaho, the smaller of the states, um, Bernie Sanders fairly trounced Hillary Clinton in these places, just as Ted Cruz fairly trounced Donald Trump. It's, it's interesting. The West, Max, is not one uh, unified block. There are very different ways of viewing the world in Utah, seemingly in Arizona. And it's interesting because it, on all the polling, Donald Trump did very well 
with evangelical, those more religious voters for such a long time. And then look at what happened out west, almost a western firewall for kind of Cruz and Sanders. Um, and, and, and Bernie Sanders is doing the shame for Bernie Sanders' campaign. He's, he's, he's trouncing Hillary in states that just don't matter on the, on the, on the grander scale. The, these are states that are going to go Republican, similar to the Obama strategy of 2008. The difference was Obama won enough of those Democratic-leaning states that he eventually, of course, won at the convention. You know, the math on this is kind of interesting just at, at the level of proportional math, which the Democrats use. It was put in, I think, largely to pre- prevent front runners from running the table really fast. So you go into a state and you lose the state, but you don't lose everything. You come away with a consolation prize. The problem is when somebody gets way ahead the way that Hillary Clinton has gotten, then the proportional math doesn't help you so much because you can win a state, but you won't win enough. Bernie Sanders probably wins, needs to win all of his contests from here until the convention by like a 58-42 margin every single time. Um, and every single time he doesn't do that, he's got to win by a bigger margin someplace else. So now, because, in fact, no matter what he does, she'll get something. She'll be able to add to her total. Makes it very, very hard for him to come behind and catch up. You know, and on the Republican side, it's sort of the opposite. It's winner-take-all, or at least uh, uh, hybrid winner-take-all in a lot of these states. Uh, Trump was able, I believe, to get all the Arizona delegates. You know, he just keeps adding to his total. He's way ahead of Ted Cruz. Now, I mean, the question now becomes, does he have 1,237? Is he going to get that by the convention? I don't think the question is, is Ted Cruz who's going to catch up. I think I don't see how that can happen to him. He's so far behind now. Uh, the only question would be, is Trump going to roll into Cleveland with a victory in hand, or is he going to have to fight for it there? But, but now even another a member of what we'll call the Republican establishment, Jeb Bush, throwing his support behind Ted Cruz. I mean, this is something, Colin, I think an awful lot of Republicans are kind of holding the nose because there are many people in that party that just do not like Ted Cruz at all. And now even Jeb Bush is saying, yep, Ted's my guy. Yeah, but it's sort of like throwing Ted a life preserver after he's bobbed down below the surface a couple of times, you know. And I mean, it really it shows you exactly how enthusiastic Jeb Bush is about helping out Ted Cruz that he did it at this point. Max, uh, that's a that's a spectacular analogy of what's going on. Um, no, and Jeb Bush, you know, this is such a, it's another moment. It's been it's been analyzed ad nauseum now that where the Republican electorate is is in such a different place than where this Republican establishment is that we all talk about. As I use my air quotes, which I realize I'm on radio right now, not <laughs> television. Okay. I um, can see them. Uh, it, it happens from time to time. But um, you know, you, you have these voters where they're they're still going to Trump in mass, but Cruz, the establishment, still thinks he's the guy who can get to him. I uh, for for the sake of my profession, Danielle's profession, you guys. This makes gives us so much job security in July and August. <laughs> I, I think that you're exactly right about that. Hey, next month as Connecticut voters cast their ballots in the presidential primary, and most of the candidate la- names look familiar, uh, there will be one Democrat on the top line of the ballot that might not look familiar. Yes, Rocky De La Fuente is a petitioning candidate. Not only did he make it onto the ballot in our state, but since the order of names is random, he's actually at the top of the ballot. Now, many of our listeners have not heard from Rocky De La Fuente or even heard of him. Here's a little bit of how he views the current political system. I'm tired of the same speeches over and over again from the same politicians, from all the politicians, in regardless if the Republicans, Democrats, or Independents, the left, the right, One side says they're better, the other one is not. I'm the good party, you're the bad party, so forth and so on. We now have internet. Can't they come up with better speeches? 
Why do we have to see the same speeches over and over again? I want to create a new class of hardworking public servants. Hardworking public services, uh, servants who are out there, Colin, scouring the brand new Internet to try to find a brand new speech. What do you make of Rocky De La Fuente? Well, I'm kind of hoping that in a brokered convention, Clubber Lang will get in somehow. But, um, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, obviously, first of all, I have a fondness, as you know, that you really don't particularly share for fringe candidates. No, I have and a fondness for I, them. I, I just will, don't like I to... Will, I will get Rocky <laughs> De La Fuente. If there's breath in my body, I will get Rocky De La Fuente uh, on my show at some point. I don't know uh, if there's very much else to say about this other than he's uh, an endearing curiosity. Uh, He's certainly somebody you could vote for if you reach the point which many people on the Democratic side are quickly reaching, where you have severe, profound doubts about Hillary Clinton and you can't stand Bernie Sanders um, advocates anymore. Uh, Actually, I'm exactly at that point. I mean, (laughs) I was planning to vote for Bernie Sanders uh, uh, on April 26th. I'm now concerned that I don't want to give the satisfaction uh, of voting for Bernie Sanders to the Bernie Sanders supporters who are driving me out of my mind. So I don't know. Rocky's looking pretty good to me. I know, Cut me, Mick. And, and he's, he's on the top of the ballot line, Danielle. I mean, we, there are going to be a certain number of people just like, yeah, sure, that guy on top. Yeah, I, I, I think definitely that. And and what for what Colin said as well, people are just, you know, they're, they're sick of the other two. Um, we're hearing rumblings that Bernie may be coming. I mean, it's a long way out, so, you know, more than a month, but he may be coming before the primary. Who knows? Um, I think his supporters here would love to have him here, and maybe Connecticut is a state that he thinks he might be able to do well in? Who knows? Uh-oh. Max, you just, you just talked about all those states that he keeps winning and putting time and effort into that just don't matter. Is this a, is this a, a sign of things to come? Bernie coming to Connecticut, a state that just doesn't matter? It's, it's, it's a good question. I think, that, I think that if he keeps doing well, you look at the primary list, you got New York before that, you got a couple other states before that, if I'm not mistaken. But look, Connecticut's an influential state, even though we may be small with the nutmeg state. It's, it's still an influential state that's had you know, a, a, good, a good bit of pull on the national stage. Sure, he can do well. And if I'm not mistaken about Rocky, I think he's on the ballot in like 30 yeah. states, yeah. Mm-hmm. 30 or 40 states. This was great Twitter bait when he made the ballot like a month ago. And I had a couple of friends in other states going, oh, yeah, he's on the ballot here. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, we can't wait to see Rocky. Good, good for him. Max <laughs> Reese is a political reporter for NBC Connecticut. Daniela Altamari, statehouse reporter for the Hartford Current College. Colin McEnroe from the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. When we come back, we're going to be talking about pending state layoffs, a little battle between the governor and state labor unions. That's coming up next in the wheelhouse where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're joined by Daniela Altamari, statehouse reporter for the Hartford Current, Max Reese, political reporter for NBC Connecticut, and our own Colin McEnroe. Hey, Colin, what's happening on the Colin McEnroe Show today at 1? Well, you know, I mean, we have a whole lot of questions about leadership uh, and who you can trust. You can always trust. Well, you can't always trust Batman. Actually, Batman uh, morphs uh, from thing to thing to thing uh, throughout uh, his entire existence. However, um, his aesthetic has remained really interesting. And he's unlike any other Cape Crusader. I mean, he doesn't have any powers or anything like that. So we're going to talk about the enduring aesthetic, moral, and literary appeal of Batman. My goodness, Batman today. Your favorite uh, movie, Batman, Colin? You know, I, I, I'm not sure. That I, I think it's got to be Christian Bale. Christian Bale? Weird though he is. Yeah. Uh, I'm still a Michael Keaton guy. I'm definitely a Michael Keaton guy. Yeah? Not a Batman fan. Not a Batman <laughs> fan at all. Michael Keaton, because he's a Pittsburgh guy. That's all I got to say. Uh, Batman coming up at 1 o'clock uh, on the Colin McEnroe Show today. Yesterday, Senator Richard Blumenthal spoke out about the foreign worker visa program. He was joined by several former Eversource employees who lost their jobs to people holding the H-1B visa. Danielle, what is Senator Blumenthal talking about here? 
He's talking about this uh, visa program that is uh, designed to bring high-tech specialized workers into the U.S. Um, uh, to, you know, to work. And what his contention is is that companies are sort of misusing this um, uh, this program and using it to, you know, lay off older, uh, better-paid American workers um, and replace them with with foreign workers. And he was talking about um, some Eversource employees. Uh, who were laid off. They were um, actually, I think, forced to train their replacements, which was sort of like salt in the wound, um, and then laid off um, and um, replaced by, you know, people who came in through this H-1B visa program. Of course, one of the things that we have heard is that this program is really important to bring in high-tech workers mm-hmm. that, the, that the United States economy needs. And so there is this little balance, right? There's a, there's a, a little bit of a question about you know, foreign workers taking American jobs. And there's also the question of, you know, do we want to shut out a workforce that may indeed be really, really useful to big parts of the economy? Yeah, and I think what he's proposing isn't uh, doing away with the program. It's, uh, he's part of this group of senators, both Republicans and Democrats, who want to reform it and put some safeguards in to make sure that employers don't um, use this to lay off Americans. But, um, you know, again, it's, it's complicated. And, and this is something that, that Apple CEO Tim Cook has been trumpeting in, in Washington now for, for, I believe, two or three years, um, where, uh, well, I guess he's only been CEO for two years. But um, this between this and overhauling the federal tax code, he's saying he's basically saying to Washington, look, if you guys want us to have the best workers in the world, you want us to make the best products in the world, you got to allow us to have the best workers in the world. And the H-1B visa program does that. The question is, is, is at what cost? And, and Blumenthal is trying to make the point here that, look, there are there's a, almost a human capital consequence to this here if you just allow these people to come in here. And uh, Colin and I, we, we were talking before off this. It's You're not almost sure where, where, where you stand on an issue like this. Yeah, I, I, I struggle with this one, maybe because I don't know much about it. I would point out that Superman is essentially an H-1B worker. He's, <laughs> he's not born here. That's, this Does, is true. Doesn't even really have papers when you get down to it. But, um, he's qualified. We he's can qualified. say that about I Superman. You couldn't really get that skill set I mean, anywhere else. I specialized job. I mean, yeah. dresses differently. Yeah, like it's not like there's somebody else who got laid off so that Superman could. No, you know, I mean, in some ways, maybe the longer view argument is why aren't in other words why would why would company, companies like apple have to look overseas for that level of training and that level of skill as america tries to become more competitive in all the ways that have become very much the lingua franca of this campaign season maybe the argument is well what's the deficit that exists that would cause uh, that would trigger the necessity of something like this. I mean, we have a pretty good educational system here. So why isn't it creating exactly the kind of worker that Apple needs? Um, uh, turning now to some some state politics, uh, Senate President Martin Looney told reporters yesterday that the state legislature will vote next Tuesday on the budget. Seems, Daniel, lawmakers weren't necessarily aware of this decision, heard about the vote through the media. Is, is, is this what's happening at the state capitol right now? Yeah, Republicans uh, heard about it uh, through, you know, basically by talking to reporters. Um, yeah, it it's uh, it's very dysfunctional over there right now. I mean, there's a, a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, a lot of pain. As, as opposed um, to the normal level of functionality <laughs> that, it, that it exhibits. Well, I mean, you could argue that it's always dysfunctional, but I think this year we're seeing um, more of everything. More of everything bad. <laughs> more, more of everything bad. Is that, is that how you read it over there, Max? When, when, you, when you speak with lobbyists, you speak with those uh, the people who are really in the inner workings of, of of our state government. They're really saying this feels different. They're saying that this budget time right now feels different than other years. You have 
the governor talking about layoffs and going against labor. You have uh, state Democratic leaders refusing to rule out all of the things that Malloy is talking about. It's a different kind of climate. Uh, and, yeah, it's a dysfunctional building the way every state government is, if we're being frank about it. But uh, it, it appears that there's going to be very difficult decisions that are going to have to get made, and no one really wants to make those decisions. And well, here's Governor Malloy talking about it. If I raise taxes, you guys will uh, lead the charge in complaining. Uh, if I say we have to live within our means, you'll agree. And if I say we have to make cuts to live within our means, you'll report that it's terrible. Okay, so uh, he doesn't like any any of the options that the press is going to talk. Talking to Max and Daniello when he said that? Yeah, I, yeah. I think he may have been. Yeah. I believe we were there. Yeah. I think that was only uh, about a week ago. Oh, a little less than that. Nice, nice work, guys. Yeah, I know. <laughs> So at the end of the last session, I think I compared the legislature to one of those camels in Lawrence Arabia that just sort of gives up at a certain point and just kind of like <laughs> sinks down onto its knees and then kind of lies down and dies in the <laughs> desert. It was kind of like that at the end. It was kind of like, oh, I don't, we don't really know. What That's to do. it. We're just going to stop, you know. And and so this, but this time it's worse. I don't even know what to compare it to. Probably you know the Joker has taken over or something like that. And and. I think the problem here, I'm now about to be Mr. Broken Record here. The problem is if you're governing in an environment of chaos where there is, where your slogan is more bad things than ever or whatever it was that Daniel just said, it's difficult to prioritize, right? All you're really doing at this point is throwing sandbags over the side of your hot air balloon to see if you can get the thing you know, to crest over the mountaintops. And, and, and the, the, now what, what happens is every day we are greeted to – a completely justifiable new round of caterwauling from various human services groups and, and other worthy operations saying, how can you cut this? So whether it's the bee inspector, which I mean seems kind of funny, but really, you know, bees are really important to agriculture and bees are in the middle of their own really horrible crisis. Probably be a good idea to have a bee inspector or prison reentry programs. A very eloquent thing was written uh, by one of their advocates this week about that. Or pick your other cause, your human services cause, uh, your, your agriculture cause, your business cause. They're all getting cut. And at the end of the last session, before the camel dropped to the desert, one thing legislators were saying, and here's where I am, the broken record, they said, we don't know what the plan is. Like, from the whole time, for the whole time we've been here, there's been no set of priorities. Like, we're going to do this, but not this. And when we, when we try to come out here, you know, uh, instead, there's just this constant sort of cutting, paring, slicing. Uh, and, and, and I think now that's really coming back to haunt them. Now, I don't even know. I don't know how you would arrive at priorities now. Your only real priority is to survive this whole process. And we don't. And and it's a fair point that where at the end of last session you didn't really know who was driving the automobile on this. Was it the governor? Was it the general assembly? Because the house was a frankly a, a dysfunctional mess. I mean, you had you had the speaker of the house doing backroom votes, and now here we are. Almost a year after that, and, and you're hearing a different tone from the governor where he's saying, look, rescission authority was built for one thing. Let me cut other things. If you let me cut other things, then we can talk about those priorities, uh, the, the prison reentry programs, mental health, disability services, all those different things that Colin's talking about. But at the same time, he also has to grapple with, and so does the General Assembly, this state made a decision about 30 years ago that it was going to provide a lot of state services that most other states aren't going to provide for. And now the governor and everybody else is saying, can we really afford those things right now? Yeah, and, and so what, what comes of that? We're asking that question, but we're asking that question maybe 30 years too late. And, and to Colin's point, Daniela, we, we maybe are not in a place to be making big decisions about the future of how Connecticut's going to run. We need to sort of solve 
massive problems right now. Yeah, it's, you know, it's always a crisis, right? So you're always just trying to get out of the crisis and then you'll deal with the bigger issues later. I mean, um, you know, you you have, you know, the Republicans coming out with their plan. Um, the governor's talking about, you know, we have to really reassess what core services the state is going to provide. How do you define core services? I mean, um, you know, as Colin said, you have these people coming up to the Capitol every day, you know, with really painful stories. One lawmaker told me at the beginning of the session, you know, um, talking about Yukon cuts. And he's like, look, you know, I, I got I to gotta be honest with you. If I'm talking about raising tuition or, you know, cutting things at Yukon and I'm dealing with, you know, families of parents with developmentally disabled adults who don't know what's going to happen to those their, their children when, when they die – guess which side I'm going to come on. You know, I mean, those are the types of, you know, decisions that, that they're going to have to make. And it's really, really hard. Well, and, and you know, just this this past week, here's Chris Murphy, a U.S. senator, uh, talking to Sandy Hook families, hailing passage of federal mental health legislation, something he's been working on for a long time as human services, the sort of yeah. things that are going to provide mental health services here in Connecticut are being cut. Exactly. I, I actually asked the Sandy Hook families about that. And, you know, of course, they, they didn't want to weigh in. They, uh, you know, Mr. Barden said basically he hasn't, uh, you know, read the read up enough about what uh, is going to be cut in Connecticut. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and you have, you know, program after program, the governor's invested a lot of uh, political capital and time and energy into his second chance initiative. And then you have, you know, prison reentry programs being cut. I mean, there's so many different things that, you know, um, are going to be really, really hard. And, and the thing that when you when you press Governor Malloy on the mental health specifically, he says, well, well, no administration has ever provided more resources mm-hmm. mental health than mine. Well, but then but where does the rubber meet the road with where that commitment really is? Can you cut it while also being committed? Uh, and I think that that is one of the things that that they're really trying to wrestle with. So in some ways, it does point up the hollowness uh, of the rhetoric that, that crops up in the middle of these debates uh, about uh, sort of post-Sandy Hook-type debates where you have advocates uh, of free access to all kinds of guns saying, well, the problem is really about mental health. That's where you should put your energy and your efforts. Whenever I'm up there and I talk to them, I say, do you actually come to the hearings you know, and insist on more funding for mental health initiatives? Or do you just say that because you don't want anybody messing with your guns? It's a rhetorical question. I know the answer. Of course not. They're not the least but interested in, de- in, in developing resources for mental health. They just think it's something that they can say uh, as opposed to anybody messing with their guns. We, we got a Twitter reaction from Devin Puglia in the governor's office, Colin. He says, I'm not sure Colin is correct here on priorities. Every agency has submitted a prioritization of its core services, which is public. Yeah, well, no. I mean, I'm not suggesting that nobody has ever articulated any priorities. The question is, to what degree does that filter down to the to, to the level of the legislators? The legislators ultimately have to pass a budget that reflects not just priorities within agencies, and I think that's what Devin's talking yes. about, uh, but priorities overall. And that's really the, the point that you've made over and over again on these programs is really that each agency having priorities, every individual Connecticut citizen having priorities is not the same as the state having a set of priorities that we're all going to try to follow so that we can work together to get someplace. Yeah, each one of Malloy's commissioners is effectively an advocate for a set of priorities within his or her own purview. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure Mr. Redeker would like to see an awful lot of really good, great things happen within transportation, and he's capable of ordering those things in, in terms of priorities. The job of the legislature ultimately is to sort through that at the interagency agency level uh, and like whose whose ox gets gored, whose ideas get pushed forward. And 
I don't know that we, there really is an overarching theory about what to do about that. And then piggyback on what Colin is saying, and this is what the governor has been pleading, trying to say, look, just let me cut some stuff. Give me this block grant. Give me all this money. I'll take care of it. But good luck selling that to members of General Assembly. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. We have a separate – we are a separate branch of government here. You can't just take the money from us and 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 decide what you're going to do with it. They say that's not how this works. But, but then, Danielle, are they going to do – if they want to keep control of that money, are they going to do something about it themselves to cut the money? Well, <laughs> that's, the, that's the, I don't know how many billion dollar question, right? I mean, that's, you know. Uh, I think it's like $1.1 billion-ish yeah. nowadays. <laughs> <Your take. laughs> um, I mean, you know, uh, certainly you have um, people saying, you know, tough decisions have to be made. I mean, in our, in our story today uh, by my colleague Chris Keating, he interviewed um, one of the leading liberal lawmakers in the legislature who was agreeing with the Republicans on a $50,000 item, uh, the governor's um, security detail when he goes uh, flying around the country for DGA events. And, you know, Representative Terziak, who is, you know, w- without a doubt, one of the most liberals, uh, biggest liberals in the legislature, he's saying, you know, the Republicans are right. Why should the state pick up the tab for the security detail? I mean, those are the kinds of things. $50,000, tiny amount of money, but... <laughs> <laughs> it is a tiny or amount the of beekeeper that your that, that, that your colleague Greg Ladke talked I about know. as well. We were talking about the bees before. Well, look, as we're talking about oxes getting gored, I mean, here's the the big thing, the big elephant in the room is the governor talking about lots and lots of layoffs. Uh, uh, Max heard from Governor Malloy's budget chief Ben Barnes earlier this week about requests to uh, reopen negotiations with state labor unions. We are asking them to renegotiate uh, because of the circumstance in which we find ourselves. Obviously, if they say no, we will have to continue to make the benefits payments uh, and, and provide those benefits as we do, as we are required to under the deal, and we will have to lay off more state employees. And, and essentially what we're understanding today, Max, is they've said no. I mean, that's what's going to happen. That's that's exactly where we're at. That's CBAC. And, and the governor said yesterday, uh, when, when we pressed him again, he said, look, you guys talking to us, the press, he goes, you guys maybe haven't seen it, but they've been balking talking about CBAC for the last last six weeks, uh, saying that they've had almost no communication, no talk, or if there has been, they've been rebuffed is what it sounds like. And it, it look, the, the we've seen some political games played before, but the math just doesn't work. People are going to get laid off here. Uh, it, it, it just looks like there's going to be fewer people in the workforce. And But at the same time, there's a good legal question here for CBAC, for all the unions. When is a deal not a deal? You have a collectively bargained agreement. When is it not a deal? Um, Dan Livingston, uh, his response to the state, we do not have the authority to enter into the discussions you suggest without the specific direction of our elected rank-and-file leadership. Uh, so, Colin, what do we make of this? I mean, this is this is a battle we kind of knew was going to happen, but it now is playing out at a level which the governor is going to have to make a really hard decision. Yeah, or the unions might have to have, make a really hard decision. In other words, it is possible to have the conversation that Mr. Livingston is saying has not taken place yet, right? I mean, you, you can have that conversation. Now, the, the fundamental question of the jungle uh, always is, do you want to be eaten in one gulp by a lion or do you want to be nibbled to death by ducks? And I, I'll take ducks every time. Um, and so the, <laughs> the ducks are, you reopen, you reopen these contracts and you see – you know, I mean, there's not a lot of wiggle room probably from the point of CBAC, but there, there's there's something that you can do short of the kinds of wholesale layoffs, which is my 
being swallowed whole by the lion that will come if, in fact, there isn't any any, any movement here. I, I don't quite understand what kind of game, to use Max's term, is being played here. I mean, if I were Livingston, if I were Seaback, um, I, I'd get all my options on the table uh, and take a look and see really what the numbers are and see how big the, the, the layoff scenario is and then whether there's an alternative to it. I don't quite understand why you wouldn't want to do that. Does it seem like this is possible to actually come to some sort of come to the table, try to figure out what the options are and negotiate with the Malloy administration? Well, uh, I don't know, you know, what else are you going to do? I mean, like, as Colin just laid out, you know, um, you've got Democrats in the legislature, friends of labor, longtime friends of labor saying, you know, they've got to step up. So I think it's pretty clear. I also think there's an optics question for Governor Dan Malloy, which is no doubt that his staff have weighed. At what point is he going to become the anti-union governor, uh, especially in a year where he's probably going to have a high-profile speaking spot at the Democratic National Convention, the head of the Democratic Governor Association, and he's coming off as being anti-union? How will that fly with a broader Democratic Party over the next several months? But is there is there a Democratic Party, is there a National Democratic Party, maybe one led by uh, Hillary Clinton, that rethinks – its relationship with labor unions at the state house level all across America that actually says in a more realistic way some of the things that we're saying here today, the, the days of long-term pension obligations and payouts uh, and overtimes, that's sort of over. And the Democrats, as a national party, are going to figure out how to <laughs> by use another one of Collins' things, we're going to sort of nibble this away as opposed to making wholesale changes of the Scott Walker type. I think that's a very fair question that I think that Connecticut is a part of what's going on with that. It's a part of the – I don't know if the answer is solution is a proper vernacular here, but every state – at, at some point in time decided that state employees were in fact going to have a benefit package that if we are – if we're speaking frankly and factually is better than the private sector. The, 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 that's a fact in most cases. Uh, my, my wife has been a teacher in several different states. She's always had a much better premium and a copay than I've had working in the private sector. And it seems like they're trying to, to get an adjustment of sorts, a correction like you see on the stock market uh, for, for state government and the way those benefits work. And I don't know if it will happen in Connecticut or Michigan or California or somewhere else. Yeah, and Colin, I just, I'd like to put that to you. This notion that the Democratic Party maybe needs to reassess holistically its relationship with labor at the state house level. Think about new ways. I mean, maybe, you know, Governor Malloy, not too terribly long ago, wouldn't want to be seen as an anti-union governor. Maybe this is a different type of Democrat that is necessary for some of the state budget problems across the country. Well, I mean, I think nationally a lot of this recalibration already happened. I think it started in the 1990s. I mean, the conversation nationally between the Democratic Party and labor altered fundamentally when the Democratic Leadership Council and the sort of the Bill Clinton type Democrat emerged on top of the party. So, I mean, that's kind of already happened. In some ways, states are kind of outliers, right? They're, they tend to have their own highly sp- specific and a little bit idiosyncratic relationships, governor to unions. I mean, there's no way that, that Dan Malloy is Scott Walker. I mean, he just he just isn't. And, and in some ways, I, I don't know, I get in a lot of trouble for saying this, but in some ways, I, I feel as though the, the first attempt at so-called concessions led by Marco Jakey in, in the first year of Dan Malloy's first term 
um, betokened or, or revealed a, a real intransigence on the part of the unions. I mean, they really weren't willing to negotiate very much. They got fear. I thought they were going to get hurt jumping over tables to accept this particular <laughs> set of uh, arrangements. And instead, they were very angry about any change that they had to make. So in some ways, I do feel as though the relationship between Malloy and, and the unions has gone worse than he would have expected, too. I think he saw himself coming in in his first term as a guy who'd enjoyed an awful lot of support from state unions, and he'd probably get along with them pretty well. I think he's been surprised at how hard they've been to work with. Uh, and I'm not sure they help themselves in some of the stances they take. Uh, we got an email from Jason who says, it's my understanding that if and when layoffs happen, tenure is the primary component of who gets let go and who doesn't. For example, an employee with five years of experience who makes $50,000 would be let go over a 20-year employee making 80000 even if lower-tenured employee has done better on performance reviews, is more technically advanced, has the potential to be a leader, etc. Why does the labor contract protect tenure so much? More savings with less displacement could be achieved by letting more highly compensated staff go. This is, comes from emailer Jason. Max? It's kind of a third rail there, isn't it, for it's, some it's of like these? It's the biggest third rail. Uh, and look, I mean, Sue Haig with the Associated Press, she, she was the one asking the question. Questions yesterday of has the administration taken into account the amount of these paid this paid time off that many of them are going to have? And even the administration said, look, when we lay off a bunch of these people, there's going to be very little short term savings. It's a long term decision. Is what and and this is something we've, we've heard for a while, too. We make these cuts and oh, my goodness, there's a bunch of costs associated. With this It's not like you just cut people's salaries, yeah. Danielle, and all of a sudden the money goes away. Yeah. Like prison guards. You need them anyway. Right. I mean, we have fewer prisoners and, you know, fewer prisons than we had in the past, but you still need them. So who's going to pick up the slack? People doing taking overtime. It's one of the reasons why I think the governor does not like these um, early retirement incentive packages because it costs a lot up front and a lot long term as well. Maybe the prisoner is going to answer phones for the DMV or something. We could like harness, <laughs> solve two problems at once. It's, it's the best that's idea what, I've ever heard. Added to about. the second chance. I think Rocky so. Fuente and they're going to be registering people to vote. This is unbelievable. Well, I know, I know. We're solving the state's problems here, <laughs> we'll, we'll do it. We'll do everything at the same time. I want to say we never accomplished anything here. <laughs> thank Daniela Altamari, State House reporter for the Hartford Courant, who's going to rush off and go cover Chris Murphy. Thanks, Daniela. Thank you very much. Max Reese is with us. He's political reporter for NBC Connecticut. You stay right there, Max, along with Colin McEnroe. He's host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. When we come back, we'll go under the sea with Chris Murphy. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, in what has been a long and heated presidential race, we've heard a term over and over again that you usually don't hear in American politics too much, the term fascism. On the next Where We Live, we'll speak to a UConn professor who studies fascism in the U.S. and some of the responding anti-fascist movements will get a better political understanding of what this term actually means. You can join the conversation coming up tomorrow on the next Where We Live. We're in the wheelhouse today, our weekly news roundtable. Max Reese is here, political reporter for NBC Connecticut, and Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Quickly, Colin, I, I guess I should just ask you, I, I would have asked you this earlier, but it, I, it came on me as I was reading our promo for tomorrow's show. You did a program about Donald Trump in the third year of a Trump presidency yesterday. Yesterday on the program, what it would be like in 2019 if he's elected president. What did you really take away from that? What are some of the things that, that you uh, gathered from the various people you talked to about a Trump presidency? Yeah, well, no, we, I mean, it, I think the difficulty is that when you start talking like about something like that, you really wind up just people start talking about what their current anxieties are. Uh, and, and so um, I think one of the maybe one of the big takeaways for me is talking to the philosopher Michael Lynch from UConn uh, about one of the things that we think anyways kind of embedded um, in, in 
in our notion of American society. And that's what philosophers call epistemic equality, which is that, you know, anybody should be able to sit on a jury. You know, anybody should be able to vote. I mean, um, and that one of the things that Mr. Trump at, at his worst moment seemed to be suggesting is that maybe everybody isn't equal. Uh, and I mean, there were a lot of fears in the, among the people that we talked to. I think about the Muslim population and certainly uh, uh, Mr. Trump is is kind of kind of put a boutonniere on all that with his first wave of remarks post Brussels too. I mean, the the things that he's been talking about uh, are uh, all the interviews that we did were recorded right before Brussels, and then everything that he said right after Brussels suggested that a he's kind of an amateur about all this stuff, and b uh, he's um, he's the kind of person you could legitimately worry would overreact to something like that in our country. And, and Max, as somebody who covers politics every day, I mean, you're probably just as immersed in this as, as anybody else could be. Is I'm wondering what you what you're hearing from people about this because we we hear constantly about Trump anxiety for those uh, people who are very fearful of Donald Trump. Clearly, though, there's an awful lot of American citizens who really, really like the idea of Donald Trump as president. So, well, I mean, what are you in your political circles uh, hearing and talking about right it's, now? It's, it's incredible. I mean, there's a hesitance in, um, in state Republican circles to even utter the word Trump. Off the record, you're going to hear all kinds of things. You've heard people say, I hate the guy. They say, I need him to go away because it'll make my life easier politically. But even just regular folks, I mean, I was at a family event. It was a family uh, uh, function about a week and a half ago. Well-to-do, uh, wealthier folks there are probably leaning Republican, kind of country club Republican types. And they come up to me knowing what I do for a living, and they go, this thing is crazy. They say, I can't believe what I'm seeing right now in this country. And But then you watch the rallies, and you, there's, a mis, there's a misconstruing of what does a huge – rally look like and what does actual support look like? You know, Mitt Romney was filling baseball stadiums by the end of the last race, and he got walloped in the Electoral College. Donald Trump is filling football stadiums. And 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 the Washington Post had its poll out yesterday, its most recent poll. Donald Trump is above 60 percent disapproval rating. And if that tells you all you need to know about maybe where more of the country is, that probably gives you a better idea of maybe what an actual election would look like. Although I would just throw into this that, uh, you know, the latest set of polls, you know, there's the, the sort of the negative um, rating when we talk about yeah, it's a negative spin, right? yeah, or, or, when, or when you talk about somebody's favorable rating uh, minus their unfavorable rating. Uh, so both um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are in negative numbers. Well they're underwater. In, they're, now. they're in the biggest negative numbers um, any political candidate in the history since 1984 when this kind of calculation was first done. I think Trump's negative currently is a minus 33. So in other words, his right. his unfavorable rating is that much bigger than his favorable rating. And I think Hillary Clinton's around a 21. The previous record holder was, interestingly, Bill Clinton with, I think, 17 in 1992. So you, you have an election coming up, assuming that these are the two nominees, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders. I have to say that because but, I'll get email. But assuming these are the two nominees, you have an election coming up where people but, are going to be playing defense. But that's an incredible point, Colin, because the two with the highest positives are John Kasich and Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. Those guys have the highest positives and the lowest negatives across the board, partisan and nonpartisan. It, we, we are in this vortex of a political race right now. Um, Kayon, I'm going to ask you to start some tape right now because I just heard Max not too long ago say the words underwater. That is, of course, Colin, is is the theme to one of my favorite movies of all time, a movie that I've seen probably more than I, I should have, The Hunt for Red October. We're playing this today because, well, it gets us to a story about Senator Chris Murphy. We talked about him earlier, and he probably had a more interesting weekend than you did. He was actually on board a submarine deep in the Arctic. Here's Murphy. The ice is melting and moving at a... Um, 
at a robust pace in the Arctic today, and we've got to understand what the implications of that are uh, for human life uh, and for uh, the traffic of boats and submarines uh, in uh, in the Arctic. So, of course, a lot of kind of funny headlines uh, came out of this this week. But here's Chris Murphy actually going going on a submarine, something that Connecticut is in the business of building, Colin, and using this platform to talk about something that we're actually not hearing anything about it all during this presidential race, which is climate change. So good on Chris Murphy. Yeah, I guess. I mean, maybe that's what it takes to get the conversation going. I have to think that Dick Blumenthal is looking at Chris Murphy and going, you learn fast, grasshopper. <laughs> uh, but, um, but, you know, John, that's the narrative Chris Murphy wants you to believe. Now, in fact, when he was in that submarine, he really started to crack at a certain point, the way people often do when they're underwater. And it got ugly. Wolfie, do we have that tape? Haven't you forgotten, Captain? I'm in charge of this operation. Those orders come to you from your chief of naval operations and direct to him from your president. So before we go any further, I suggest that you get me there, put another torpedo up the spout, blow a hole in the ice. And get me there! (laughs) That's actually Patrick McGowan. Talking to Rock Hudson in Ice Station Zebra. <laughs> I, I was going to say that didn't sound at all like Chris Murphy, even doing his worst Rock Hudson impersonation. Uh, a cu- couple things on this. Number one, it's brilliant politics for Chris Murphy. He's, he's, he's trying to frame himself as like the pro-submarine, pro-electric boat guy. He's done it in the past. It's brilliant for him. Number two, he talks about climate change. No one else is. But number three, he turns himself into an actual living, breathing House of Cards character uh, from the Netflix series. Uh, you know, I have this image of you know, Kevin Spacey going to the Jordan Valley, this myth place uh, with a helmet on uh, the president of the United States with the, with the camouflage and Chris Murphy's in fact literally underwater in a submarine uh, decked out uh, this is this is spectacular stuff it's spectacular spect- it's spectacular stuff and you know it, it's it's really good optics or whatever but I mean I'll get back to this the serious piece of this max and, and I've brought this up before you know here is um, a U.S. senator who's spending some of his time with everything else going on in the world um, talking about using this as a way to talk about climate change. And I, I guess I can't stress enough that this is something that we're just not hearing about at all on the campaign trail because of all of the disastrous things that are going on in the world and because of all the disastrous things that seem to be going on at state houses and people worried about job cuts. We as a society just seemingly have put this notion aside, whether or not uh, we're making energy decisions or anything else. And I guess I just wonder what it might take beyond just Chris Murphy getting into submarine under the ice to start talking about this once again as a thing that matters to America and the world. The debate has been attempted to be framed in so many different ways. The most recent one came from the Obama administration when he spoke at the Coast Guard Academy, which was a little less than a year ago now, was this is a national defense. It's a national security issue that if we that that if all these things are happening around the world that are affecting the way countries look, that's going to affect the way our military looks. That's going to affect the way we respond to things. And what Chris Murphy is doing, he's he's kind of selling he's using some political capital on this saying, look, I know that this isn't sexy. I know that this isn't what people are talking about, but I think it's important. And I, I think that said, something could be said for that, at least on behalf of the people he represents. And, and the Pentagon, Colin, says it's a national security measure. I mean, they're probably at the Pentagon really more worried about this than they are about ISIS and, and the threat by these 30,000 fighters. Yeah, as well they should be. And we're sort of the country, as a country, we're sort of the guy who has a heart attack, goes on a diet, and then puts the weight back on. So every once in a while we have a heart attack, like, say, Sandy. Sandy was one of our heart attacks. Um, people got serious about it for a couple of weeks, you know, uh, and maybe some people got serious about it a little bit longer than that. I would say, back to Max's point about the, the Bernie Sanders campaign and its various stages, early in the campaign, and I don't know if it's still going, if he's still doing it as much now, but Bernie Sanders was the one candidate talking Absolutely. about climate change, talking about it in a real way. I think it's hard 
to talk about it in an eat-your-spinach way. But if you can talk about it as an opportunity for economic growth and job development in new sectors that don't even exist now, maybe that's a, a positive message. Uh, Colin McEnroe, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Max Reese, political reporter for NBC Connecticut. Chris Murphy, under the sea here in the wheelhouse on Where We Live. Thanks for joining us. Yeah.